You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So one thing abundantly clear about the Apostle Paul was that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us there the most detailed list of what he experienced, which included labors and imprisonments. Countless beatings, often near death. Five times he received the beatings of 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. On three different occasions he was shipwrecked. And at least once he was adrift at sea for a night and a day. He was constantly on the road where he was vulnerable to all kinds of dangers and hardships. He also didn't sleep well. And he was often hungry and thirsty and cold. That was typical Apostle Paul. Just living his best life now. 2 Corinthians 11. But then on top of all of that physical suffering, he said he had a a daily pressure and an anxiety on him for all the churches. And there's no doubt that this had to do with the false teachers and the critics who threatened the churches and also verbally attacked him and tried their best to undermine him. So, I mean, seriously, if we think about all that the Apostle Paul had against him, it's just astonishing. I mean, simply astonishing that he had a fruitful ministry. I mean, how did that happen? How, how is it that he just didn't quit? Why didn't he quit? What, what encouraged the Apostle Paul to keep going? In short, it's because he knew the ultimate meaning of Exodus 34. Or to be more exact, we could say it this way. One reason the Apostle Paul was able to keep hope throughout his ministry is because he understood what the shining face of Moses was ultimately about in Exodus 34, which he tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. And so today we're going to look at both of these passages. And this, this matters for us. This matters for us because if we want to have the same hope as Paul, then we need to have the same understanding of Exodus 34 as Paul. And so that, that's the goal of, of the sermon. That's the goal of our time now. We, we want to have hope like Paul. And so how did his understanding of Exodus 34 help him? Okay, that's our question. And there are three steps that we need to take. The first is this. We're going to see what's actually happening in the second half of Exodus 34, which we just heard read. Second we're going to look at why does this matter to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3? And then we're going to finish here thirdly. How do we actually apply this to our lives? Okay, those are the three steps. Number one, looking at Exodus 34. Number two, we're looking at 2 Corinthians 3. And then thirdly here, what's the difference? <laughs> why does it matter? Why does this matter for your life tomorrow or this afternoon? Why does, it, why does it matter right now? That's, that's the question we're going to end on. So let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, because of your mercy and grace, 
because your word is open before us right now. We ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, accomplish in our hearts all that you will. We pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come and your will be done. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, what's going on in the second half of Exodus 34? Remember last week we looked at verses 1 to 9. And in verses 1 to 9 is where we see God proclaiming his name to Moses. I mean, this is Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. It is the high water mark of the Old Testament where Yahweh shows his glory as the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means let sin go unpunished. This is the truth of who God is. And it's the truth that we see from here out constantly repeated in the Old Testament. What God reveals about himself in Exodus 34 verses five to seven changes everything. And it's the reason why in chapter 34 verse nine that Moses has the confidence now to ask God to pardon Israel's iniquity. So here's what's going on. In order for Israel to move forward from here to the promised land, in order for them to be Yahweh's inheritance, they need his forgiveness. That's what Moses asked for in verse 9. And then after that, in verse 10, verse 10 starts a new section. From verses 10 to 28, Yahweh is reinstituting the covenant with Israel that he started back in chapter 19. Chapter 19 was the first time that Moses went up on Mount Sinai. So you don't have to turn there, but what I want to do, I want to back up for a minute and just remind you of where we've been starting in Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is when Yahweh calls Moses up on Mount Sinai and he starts to make this covenant. Chapter 20, Yahweh gives us the Ten Commandments. From chapters 21 to 24 is where we read what's called the Covenant Code, which is like an elaboration on the Ten Commandments. And chapters 25 to 31 is where we have the instructions for the tabernacle and the instructions of like what the priest is supposed to wear. And then in chapter 32 is where we hear the screeching stop. Remember? Moses comes down from the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights and he finds the people worshiping a golden calf. And remember when he came down in chapter 32, Moses came down the mountain holding the two tablets of stone that had the law written on it. But when he saw the people sin, he got so angry that he threw these stone tablets down and they broke. Well, in chapter 34, verse 1, God tells Moses to cut two new tablets of stone and bring those new tablets of stone back up on the mountain because God says he's going to rewrite the law on these new tablets. Verses four, 5 to 7, remember, is when God proclaims his name. We saw that last week. And then here we are in verse 10, a new section. And God says in Exodus 34, verse 10, Behold, I am making a covenant. So what's he doing here? making a covenant, just like he says. And rather than him this time start, rather than God start by referring back to Israel's rescue from Egypt, he actually starts by pointing forward to their future conquest in Canaan. 
And, and then from here, from verses 11 to 26, God basically repeats the covenant code that we read about in chapter 23, verses 11 to 19. That just means what we read here are things that God has said before. In fact, everything that God says in these verses parallel the Ten Commandments. So it's almost like these, these verses here, 11 to 26, it's like they're an expansion of the Ten Commandments and it's really divided into, into two sections. If you look down, you can see verses 11 to 17 are warnings against idolatry. Then verses 18 to 26 are instructions on true worship. And the reason that God focuses on these two things is because these would be Israel's biggest problem. Idolatry and compromise. Idolatry and compromise are the big outward sins of Israel, but they both come from the deeper sin of unbelief. So there's a category here we need to talk about. It's one that we've talked about before. It's that there are branch sins and there are root sins. Okay? Branch sins are the sins that are out in the open. The sins out here, these are the sins that people see. These are the sins that get most of our attention. But, but every branch sin out here is drawing life, as it were, from a root. And that root is what we can call root sins. And it is good and right and important that we keep chopping branches, okay? Everybody kill your branch sins. But we also need to dig out the root sin. We need to kill our root sins. And here's an example of how this goes with Israel. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Yahweh prohibits Israel from making a god out of cast metal. That's the verse. That's the prohibition. That's a branch sin. It's idolatry. And God says, do not do that. Heart stop. <laughs> Don't make gods out of cast metal. Kill your branch sins. But now we should consider, why would Israel do that? Why would they make a god out of cast metal? Well, it's because at root, root, Israel fails to trust Yahweh. They do not believe him. Their root sin is unbelief. And if unbelief is down here, refusing to honor Yahweh's rightful place as their God, then they have to find something else to fill that void. And so what they do is they cycle through these idols. They, they give all these false gods to try like Ashtoreth and Baal and Marduk and the list goes on and on. The idolatry is out here, but unbelief is what drives it. See? And God prohibits branch sins. He prohibits the idolatry. But he also goes for the root. He targets our root sins. This is why I think so many of the positive commandments 
are really about faith. I, I think that's what's actually behind here. All these laws about feast and the Sabbath mentioned in this passage. When it comes to instructions for true worship, look at this. Think about this. In verses 18 to 25, Yahweh is telling the people to feast. Feast. Have a party. Enjoy yourselves. Feast. He tells them plainly in verse 21 to rest. Rest. On the seventh day, on the Sabbath, rest. Why would this be so hard? Right? Why would this be so hard to do? Well, it's because if they're feasting and resting and appearing before Yahweh three times a year, it means they are not working, which means that their fields and their fruit are just left where they are. For Israel to obey these commandments means that in those moments of their obedience, they are not making themselves stronger. They are not making themselves wealthier. They are not making themselves better suited to conquer other nations. Which is the point, see. In commanding Israel to observe feast and to observe the Sabbath, Yahweh is calling them to trust him. That's why he grounds the command the way he does in verse 24. Look at verse 24. He says, for I will cast out nations before you. He's saying, hey, me. God says, me. Hey, I'm the one, Israel, who's going to do it. I'm the one who's going to enlarge your borders. I'm the one who's going to make sure that no one covets your land. You get what he's saying here? He's saying to Israel, hey, you can walk away and leave your field alone for a day. Because I'm the one who's going to take care of you. I'm the one who's going to provide for you. I'm the one who's going to protect you. In order for Israel to obey these commands, they have to trust God. And their root sin is that they don't. They are a faithless people. Even after everything they've seen. Can you believe this? After everything that they have seen Yahweh do, they still think it's up to them. They they still think that they got to take control of this thing. They don't believe that God's going to do what he says. Do, Do you see their unbelief here? Do you see how God goes for their unbelief? Do you see how faith, faith is what God wants? And this is true for us. It's true for us right now. Whatever it is that you have going on in your life, whatever it is, at any point that you have going on in your life, God is calling you mainly to trust him. Start there, right? You guys are maybe contemplating some decisions now. What's God leading me to do? First thing, trust him. Have faith in God. Here's the thing. If we dig down beneath our branch sins, if we dig down with the sins out here, we'll find that oftentimes those sins are there because we fail to trust him. 
we have unbelief in our hearts. We can't spend too much time here. I, I, I want to say this, though. Unless we begin to consider our root sins, unless we get here, unless we begin to consider our root sins, we will miss both our need for and the power of the gospel. Because here's, here's what happens. If, if we only focus on branch sins, if we only focus on the sins out here, we can tend to manage branch sins by willpower and appearances. That's how people play church, right? See? That's how we, that's how we learn to play church. But that's not what we're here for. We want the gospel of Jesus Christ to completely overcome us. Every part of us, every square inch of us, every part of us, Jesus, help me. Is that your prayer? Are we playing games? We want to be completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, verse 29. Go back to verse 29. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. This is the second time he's, came, he's, he's come down. The first time, again, back in chapter 32. And what we're supposed to do now is compare 34 to 32. We're supposed to compare Moses coming down in chapter 34 to when he came down the last time in chapter 32. There are some similarities here. In both cases, we read, he came down after 40 days and 40 nights. In both cases, Moses was holding two tablets of stone. And in both cases, there was a stunning encounter. In chapter 32, it was that Moses was stunned by the, the people's sin. In chapter 34, it's that the people are stunned by Moses' face. Look at chapter 32. Remember, um, back to 32, he comes down, he finds the, the people partying. You know, they're, they're worshiping the golden calf. He was angry. In 34, the people see the shining face of Moses and they're afraid. Look at verse 30. For a minute. Everybody see this in verse 30. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And then in verse 31, Moses calls them anyway. He says, Come here anyway. And he tells them what God said. And then after Moses talked to them with his face still shining, he puts a veil over his face in verse 33. That's a description of what he did, okay? But this is so important, this shining face in the veil, that in verse 34, it's like the narrator kind of steps back and he tells us more about the ongoing situation of the shining face in the veil. This is what continued to happen, verse 34. It says, whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded, and the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So I want us to get this clear, okay? What, when did Moses wear the veil? When did Moses not wear the veil? Well, verses 34 and 35 tell us that whenever Moses was hearing from God and then speaking God's word to the people, 
That's when the veil was removed. That's when you could see his face. But at all other times, which was most of the time, Moses, he wore the veil. He covered his face. The big question is, why did he do that? Why did Moses wear the veil? Well, the text here doesn't actually tell us. It it was not because the people were afraid. That's what I used to think. It wasn't because the people were afraid. Because when Moses spoke God's word to them, he removed the veil. They saw his face. So, So why was it that at other times he removed the veil? Exodus 34 does not tell us. Moses doesn't tell us. But I know someone who does. Turn to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, we're, this is number two, okay? Moving to 2 Corinthians 3. Why does the shining face of Moses matter to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3? Remember, Paul has suffered for the sake of the gospel. He has received all kinds of attacks and criticism. And especially here at the church in Corinth, false teachers have tried to undermine his authority as a messenger of Jesus. And so in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to defend his apostleship. And it's really, it's not just that he's trying to defend himself, but he's trying to defend his message. Paul in 2 Corinthians is defending the gospel which is what he means when he says the word new covenant, okay? In summary, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, I am a minister of the gospel. I am a minister of the new covenant and I keep doing what I do because of the unimaginable glory of this gospel I preach. And to make that argument, which he he does, to make that argument, what what Paul does, is he compares the glory, uh, the gospel of the new covenant, the glory of the gospel, with the glory of the old covenant in Exodus 34. So this is what we just read in Exodus 34. We're about to read here what Paul thinks about what we just read in Exodus 34, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. The apostle Paul says, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So see the comparison here? There's the Mosaic Old Covenant, and then there's the New Covenant. And when Paul talks about the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, he says it's a ministry of death, verse 7. It's a ministry of condemnation, verse 9. It was that which was being brought to an end, verse 11. And he contrasts this with the new covenant of the spirit of righteousness, of permanence. Now, 
going to clarify just for a second here. What Paul says here about the old covenant is not a comment on the laws themselves. Okay, he's, uh, Paul is not trashing the Ten Commandments. He's not saying that we should forget about the moral will of God. He's saying that the old covenant as in the system of the old covenant, it ultimately leads to death, which is true. Okay. Spoiler alert here. Israel can't keep the covenant. They don't. Israel cannot keep the covenant. They are a faithless people, and the old covenant cannot change that. And so then Paul argues, if the old covenant, which led to death, came with glory, then the new covenant, which leads to life, must have even more glory. The gospel, the new covenant, surpasses the glory of the old covenant. Then Paul says, verse 12, since we have such a hope, He's saying, since we have the hope of the gospel surpassing glory, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Verse 13. So we've got to track with Paul here, okay? He's got to, what's he saying? Paul, Paul goes from comparing the Old and New Covenant, so now he's comparing his ministry with the ministry of Moses. The we in verse 12, he, Paul's talking about himself and his fellow missionaries. He's saying that we are different from Moses. How? How are they different from Moses? It's because they are bold, which implies Moses was not bold. Verse 12 again, Paul is bold, Paul is bold, not like Moses because Moses would put a veil over his face. Why would Moses do that? Remember, Exodus 34 doesn't tell us exactly, but Paul here tells us it's so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So it goes like this. After Moses would hear from God and speak to the people, reflecting God's glory to the people, after he did that, he would then put the veil over his face because he did not want the Israelites to keep looking at him or to gaze at him at the glory he reflected because he knew the outcome of them seeing that glory was death. Moses knew that his ministry of the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. He knew that the ministry of the old covenant was coming to an end. And so Moses was bashful about it. He, Moses was, he was protective about it. Moses was not bold to reflect that glory, to reflect the glory in the old covenant because he knew the outcome of the old covenant. He knew it wouldn't work. He knew that people were faithless. He knew their hearts were hardened and he knew that the old covenant could not change that. See? Look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they, speaking of unbelieving Jewish people, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So here in this verse, the veil becomes a metaphor, right? He's no longer talking about the literal veil that Moses wore to cover his face. 
but he's talking about a metaphorical veil that to this day, apart from Christ, keeps people from seeing the glory of God. Verse 15, yes, to this day, he says, Paul says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Here it is. This is it. Listen to this. Verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Remember that when Moses would go to hear from Yahweh, when, when Moses turned to Yahweh, the veil was removed. Well, now Paul says that when anyone turns to Yahweh, when anybody turns to the Lord in faith, in the same way, our metaphorical veil is removed. We are able, we are able to see and to reflect the glory of Yahweh like Moses did. And we think, oh, how does this work? How, 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 how does this work? Verse 17, this is why verse 17 is so important. Yahweh the Lord, whose glory Moses saw, is the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, the God, I mean, you can't, guys, you can't make this up. He's saying, look, he's saying the, the glory, the, the, the God who revealed his glory to Moses in the old covenant is the same God at work today by his spirit in the new covenant. And do you know what the Holy Spirit does in the new covenant? He breaks hardened hearts. He gives freedom. He gives life. And so there's no wonder why Paul is so bold with this message, right? We Christians are like Moses in that we can see the glory of Yahweh with an unveiled face and we reflect that glory. But we are different from Moses and that we are bold. We are bold about the glory we reflect and we're not trying to cover it up because we know what the Holy Spirit is up to. We know the outcome of the Holy Spirit's work. Verse 18, do you know the, the outcome of the Holy Spirit? Look at this, look what Paul says. He says, we all, this is every Christian, every single Christian, we all, with unveiled face, beholding or reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The glory of the gospel is a superior glory that leads to freedom, leads to life, it leads to righteousness. This is a glory that is permanent. It is a glory that will never be superseded by another glory. In fact, this is not just a glory that does not fade. Get this. This is a glory that grows. Because we not only reflect God's glory with an unveiled face, but we are being we are being completely transformed by God's glory into the same image of that glory. And if we, if we go down just a little bit in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells us more about this glory. He says that the image of God's glory, in chapter 4, verse 6, the image of God's glory is Jesus Christ. And so to be transformed into the same image 
is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that this will happen at the last day. This will happen at the final resurrection. This is what's called the Christian's glorification. It's when our mortal bodies will put on immortality. It's when our redemption is consummated, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, when we will be finally conformed to the image of Jesus. Or as John says, this is when Jesus returns and we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is. That future day is coming. Our transformation one day will be complete. But see, that coming future transformation, that glory that will be ours in the future is already at work in our lives right now by the Holy Spirit. We are being actively transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another right now. Actively, we are being changed. And that's why Paul keeps doing what he's doing. (laughs) See? Do you see the confidence he has in the gospel? He knows what the Holy Spirit is up to, and so he keeps going. This is why the shining face of Moses in Exodus 34 matters so much to Paul. It's because he knows that Exodus 34 points to the greater glory of the gospel that is actually changing real people like us. And this is why it matters for us, okay? What difference does it make? This is why it matters for us today. This is the third thing here, okay? How do we apply this to our lives? What difference does this make? It's really simple, but this is it. All that we've read here in Exodus 34 and in 2 Corinthians 3, all of this means with more depth than we can even dream, all of this means that we can have hope that God will complete in us the work that he began. And we need to hear that. You need to hear that, Christian. Hey, he'll complete the work that he began when he called us from death to life, when he adopted us in Christ as his sons and daughters, when he poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Christian, God will complete the work that he started in you until you are radiant with the glory of Jesus Christ. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. See? Isn't it the the song, um, he's still working on me. You guys know this song? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. Or how merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness he must be. Because he's still working on me. 
He'll complete the work he started in you. He'll complete. I know sometimes in the Christian life, it can feel like we are just spinning our wheels. I know sometimes it can feel like we are not getting anywhere. But look, the glory of the gospel guarantees that is not the case. It's not. It's not. Christian, this morning, right now, Rest in the truth, rest in the truth that you are loved and accepted by God only because of the perfect life and atoning death of Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith, you have been saved and you are being saved. The glory of God is at work in you. Praise him, praise him and take heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bear witness to our hearts right now that we belong to you. By your grace, we ask, strengthen us. Strengthen us to comprehend more of your love for us in Jesus. The love, we want to comprehend the love that surpasses knowledge. We ask that you do this by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen.